Last week during the discussion, we talked about Isaiah 44 verses um, 21 through 24, in which God speaks to Israel, the nation, and says, I am the Lord, your Redeemer, who formed you in the womb. And I challenged you to think about whose womb is in view here. It seems to me that the nation of Israel was conceived and formed in God's womb. But during the discussion, I automatically code switched that language to refer to God's womb as, quote, the mind of God. And I caught myself as I edited the video, and I want to set the record straight. God has both male and female characteristics throughout scripture. We've just been conditioned to downplay God's female characteristics. I apologize for slipping into this cultural trap. We said goodbye to Isaiah, the actual person, last week, although we'll pick up some prophecies that appear in his book when we get closer to the related events. We also said goodbye to King Hezekiah and his son Manasseh. Notice that Manasseh rules even longer than Hezekiah, 55 years in all, but it's only at the end of his reign that he turns to serve Yahweh faithfully. And certainly the rest of the people do not share Manasseh's repentance. So it's no big surprise that when his son Ammon comes to the throne, he's about the wickedest king yet. He's so awful, he gets assassinated by his own men after only two years. Ammon's eight-year-old son, Josiah, now comes to the throne. You have to wonder how much influence his grandfather Manasseh had on him. Josiah would have been born in the last six years of Manasseh's life when Manasseh was following Yahweh with his whole heart. Ammon was clearly a lost cause, but perhaps Manasseh invested all he had in laying a good foundation for his young grandson. Nevertheless, the people continue with their old ways of idol worship on the hilltops, under every spreading tree, and even inside the temple. It's around this time that the Lord sends the prophet Zephaniah to Judah. His book is a smaller one, only three chapters long. If Amos was a middle or lower class shepherd, then Zephaniah is much more upper class sort of guy. His great-great-grandfather was none other than King Hezekiah himself. He starts out with a bang saying, the Lord will wipe out everything, every person, every animal, all the birds, all the fish, and all the idols that cause people to stumble. The Lord will stretch out his hand against Judah and against everyone living in Jerusalem. So all of this part, if you go back and read it, is coupled with some very strong, quote, day of the Lord, in quote, language. First, notice the stumble in imagery. We've run across that before. We saw it in Isaiah. But that time, it was the Lord himself whom Israel and Judah would stumble over. And we've seen in a couple of places where the Lord calls for paths to be smoothed and rough places made plain to prevent stumbling. So notice that stumbling can be good in the sense of the Lord throwing up roadblocks to keep us from rushing 
pell-mell into destruction, or stumbling can be something bad, such as an idol that tempts people who would otherwise be walking a good path. The second thing to notice is that there is no remnant mentioned. This is a comprehensive wipe out everything statement. I point this out because a little later, Zephaniah talks about there actually being a remnant. In chapter two, Zephaniah urges Judah and Jerusalem to humble themselves and seek righteousness and humility, to throw themselves on the mercy of God. And then in chapter three, the Lord himself says he will purify all the people of the earth and will remove the arrogant from Jerusalem, leaving those who are meek and humble, a remnant who trust the Lord. I point this out so you can understand the nature of biblical prophecy. It only gives the shape of things to come, not the specifics. Do not develop a system of theology based on a particular verse or passage. All these verses are from the same exact prophet. The passage in chapter one says absolutely everything gets wiped out, while later passages specifically address a remnant, not only in Jerusalem, but in the other nations as well. So not only are the time frames permeable with past, present, and future being telescoped in prophecy, but prophets are describing what they see and understand and just kind of absorb from different visions at different times in their lives. For me, the message is that the day of the Lord is cataclysmic. You know, the language is around mountains melting and evil is utterly wiped away. But there seems to be a consistent subset within that language, a, a consistent message that crosses every single prophet that says the Lord is only wiping away evil. Those who remain will be those who trust the Lord, those who are humble. I do think many of those who follow God will die in that day of the Lord cataclysm. I can't see this happening without collateral damage, but I trust the Lord to make it right in the end. I may die now, I may die then, but either way, I know the Lord has me in the palm of his hand. And it is the same for God's people who live through the cataclysm. Zephaniah ends by exhorting daughter Zion to dance for joy. The Lord has taken away your punishment and turned back your enemy. Never again will you fear any harm. I will rescue the lame and give praise and honor to the exiles in every land where they were shamed. This reminds me of the passage in Micah 5.8, where he talks about the remnant of Israel becoming like a young lion among the sheep while they're in exile, of how the, 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 um, God's people in exile will become strong and triumphant. So all of this is clearly end time stuff. Prophecy is like this. From one prophet, you'll get a hint at the main elephant elements, maybe with, without a lot of detail. And then from another, you'll get that same general shape, but with additional detail here and there, maybe some gaps, things that don't quite make sense. 
And from another, you'll get a whole new perspective that still ties into the bigger picture, but it never completely comes into focus. There's still movement, still possibilities. And I think that's because one, they're often expressing things they're sensing or seeing in dreams or visions more than writing specific word-for-word dictation from the Lord, as you may have been led to believe. I, I, I see it more of a, you know, they're trying to write their impressions and understandings down. And, so, and some word-for-word, clearly, but um, I don't think it's all, uh, by any means, a word-for-word dictation. And secondly, I think the, one of the reasons it's fuzzy is because our choices change the specifics of the story. It's like Zephaniah and Isaiah and Amos and Micah and Hosea, all of them have said, all the Lord wants is for us to turn our hearts wholly towards him and he will come running to meet us. What's happening here to Israel and Judah did not have to happen, but the Lord's not going to leave wickedness to dominate forever. They, they will, there will be chance after chance after chance. But the day of the Lord will come because the Lord intends to dwell among us in holiness and peace and abundance and joy. How that happens, and I think when exactly that happens, is in large part up to our response. So it makes sense that the picture is a little blurry and has pieces missing, that the pieces shift as the nations make their choices. So all of this is to say, don't let people suck you in to arguing over details or explaining differences or forcing all the pieces to line up or tie to current events or even tie to historic events. I want you to come out of this class with a solid understanding of the big picture and a realization of how consistent the shape of that big picture is without having to agonize over the details. We don't know for sure what happens during King Josiah's early years. The version of the story in 2 Kings is somewhat different chronologically than the story in 2 Chronicles. But what we do know is that young King Josiah follows Yahweh wholeheartedly. Second Chronicles tells us he begins to seek Yahweh when he is 16 years old. Assyria has reached the zenith of its power at this time and has begun its decline. By the time Josiah is 21 years old, the greatest and most brutal king of Assyria, Ashurbanipal, dies, leaving a power gap that the Babylonians in the east are only too glad to fill. Nabopolassar founds what historians and scholars call the Neo-Babylonian Empire. And it is is at this very moment in history that the Lord calls another great prophet to Judah, Jeremiah. His call story is quite dramatic. It's in chapter one of his book. He says, the word of the Lord came to me saying, Before I formed you in the womb, I knew you. I love pausing to think that Jesus is also called the word of the Lord, and that perhaps it is Jesus himself 
who calls these prophets. I also want to highlight that last bit. It's often used as a proof text to show that abortion is wrong. But I want to point out another way to look at this passage. Notice the word before. Jeremiah existed before he was in the womb. We exist in God and are known by God before our bodies are ever formed. In exactly the same way, we will exist in God and be known by God after our deaths. In Genesis 3.19, when God told Adam, from dust you came and to dust you shall return, God was clearly talking about Adam's body, not Adam's life itself. So where did the life that was Adam go when his body died? Well, what if we need to view our identities in pretzel time the way God sees us? What if, like Jeremiah, God knows us even before we are ever conceived? What if we become dust for a while and our life, the person God already knows, inhabits that dust body for a time? And what if when that dust dissolves, that life simply continues knowing God and being known by God? What if the bigger picture is that from love we come, and to love we shall return. That seems to me to be what God desires more than anything, right? An unbroken chain of being together. The whole biblical record, all the law, and all the prophets point to God always wanting to draw us to himself. And the law and the prophets are consistent with the New Testament as well. Paul preached that it is in God that we live and move and have our being here on earth in these bodies. It's in God we live and move and have our being. We are so much more than just a body. So what happens if we telescope all three pretzels together into a single God moment? What if we all exploded into being in God's great creation and have existed in the mind of God, in the womb of God since creation and will exist in God forevermore? This makes so much more sense to me than trying to demarcate exactly when physical life begins or ends. The existence of physical life is often fuzzy at both ends of the spectrum. It's only medical technology and social convention that define when this dust is officially alive or officially dead. And it makes sense that the dusty, earthly body portion of our lives is subject to medical and social convention, which changes over the centuries. Our identity in God is far, far larger and more eternal than what happens to our physical body. The physical body is not worth fighting over. We should gladly lay it down for the welfare of someone else. 
A person's identity and being is not in any way diminished by having a disabled body or by having been miscarried, either by abortion or by other circumstances. Our identity and being is neither made greater nor diminished by what happens to our bodies, either good or bad. Our bodies are clothing for our souls. Jesus said there is no greater love than to lay down your life for a friend. And he's talking about our physical bodies here. And he's talking about laying our physical body down for our friends, just friends, not even for some noble cause or for a family member we love. Jesus is absolutely right. Our dust body is something expendable. We can lay down for our friends as an act of love. What happens in our souls, in our beings, how we face towards God or not, how we care for each other, those are the important things, not the dust. Murder is wrong because it is an outworking of hatred, jealousy, and power mongering in our souls. It tears at the fabric of trust and care and love in society. As with everything God related, The issue is with the heart involved. I offer all of this as a reflection, as a way to think about how we fit into the stories we are reading. I'm also hoping this is a paradigm shift for you that will give you comfort in grief. I am hoping this paradigm shift will help you navigate current political and social tensions. And I hope this paradigm shift helps you get a handle on how to view the cataclysmic events described in the Bible. Jeremiah's call continues. I set you apart before you were born. I appointed you as prophet to the nations. The word appointed here is the common Hebrew word for give. It has broad usage, but its roots are in the concept of a gift. The word nations here is goyim, as in all peoples all over the world, not just Judah. God cares about all of the people, including all the pagan nations. I hope you're beginning to see this as a consistent thread. Well, Jeremiah is horrified. He says, I can't can't do that. I'm too young. I'm not good at public speaking. And God says, don't say that to me. You must go. Do not be afraid. I am with you and I will rescue you. Now, if I'm Jeremiah, that does not give me a warm, fuzzy feeling. I don't want to even be in a situation where I need to be rescued. Thank you very much. But the Lord reaches out his hand and touches Jeremiah's mouth and says, today, I set you aside to uproot and tear down kingdoms and nations, to destroy and overthrow, but also to build and replant. And then the Lord asked Jeremiah, what do you see now? And Jeremiah says, well, I see the branch of an almond tree. And the Lord says, you see rightly, because I am watching over my word to fulfill it. This makes zero sense in English. But that's because it's a pun in the Hebrew. Look at the symbols of the Hebrew. Notice that watching 
is exactly the same word as almond tree, just a different pronunciation, one different vowel sound. Then the Lord asked Jeremiah, now what do you see? And the Lord answers, I see a boiling pot and it's facing towards us away from the north. And the Lord says, from the north, disaster will break out over all the inhabitants of the land. The Hebrew here is more of a rhyme and rhythm. Boil is the word nafak, break is pathak. So it's nafak pathak. Get yourself ready, Jeremiah, the Lord says. Do not let them dismay or terrify or break you. Or I myself will come do the job for them. You must stand up to them today. I have made you a fortified city, a pillar of iron, a wall of bronze, so you can stand up against all of Judah, all the kings, officials, priests, and people. Do not be afraid. I am with you and I will rescue you. So poor, young, trembling, introverted Jeremiah goes out and prophesies whatever the Lord gives him to say. His themes are exactly the same ones we've heard from the other prophets. There's a great quote in chapter two where the Lord says, who ever heard of a nation changing its gods? And their gods are idols. But my people exchanged their glory for worthlessness. They committed two sins, forsaking me, their living water, and digging their own wells, broken wells that can't even hold water. Why go to Egypt and drink from the Nile? Why go to Assyria and drink from the Euphrates? You all now know the significance of those verses, which is why depend on Egypt or Assyria for protection when you've got the Lord, your God, the true living water. The Lord continues, if a man divorces his wife and she remarries, her first husband cannot come claim her. That would defile the land. And you, you haven't just taken one other lover, meaning another God, you've Take, you'll take any idol that comes along. You defile the land. I point this out because this is a clobber verse used about divorce and remarriage. But you can see from the context that God is just using a small excerpt from the law and exaggerating it to make his point. And his point is not about divorce and remarriage at all, but about idolatry. No one would think it's okay for a divorced man to try to return to his ex-wife while she's married to someone else. And that's God's point. Judah has insisted on continuing to take lover after lover, making it impossible for God to return to her as her husband, no matter how much he might want to. Then, of course, God being God, says in chapter 3, verse 14, just come back to me, for I am your husband. I will take you back in marriage. In those days, the Ark of the Covenant will not even be missed. Jerusalem will be called the throne of God, and all nations will gather to it. 
Israel and Judah will be united and will come from the north to the promised land. Notice the reference to the Ark of the Covenant being missing. Jeremiah 3 specifically states that this prophecy was during the time of King Josiah. So perhaps by that time, the Ark has already been dismantled for the gold. We don't really know. We do know that by the time Jerusalem finally falls to the Babylonians, the Ark is missing. Because at that point, when we get there, all that's left are articles of bronze. On the other hand, the passage is part of an end time quote, in those days segment. So maybe Jeremiah's vision is one of a time in which the ark will no longer be necessary. Um, that seems to fit the context of what the Lord is saying, that, that the, the Lord will be with us so close as if as in marriage. And therefore, we, they won't need the mercy seat. They won't need God in sitting in the Holy of Holies because God will be as intimate with his people as in a marriage. Then in chapter four, there is this really weird little verse where Jeremiah says, you've deceived us, Lord, saying there's peace when there's actually a sword at our throat. Well, obviously, the Lord has been completely transparent about all of this, about what Judah has done, the choices they've made, and the choice for the Lord they can still make, and the consequences of each choice. But I think Jeremiah is just so overwhelmed by the magnitude of the pending calamity that he cannot see how there can ever possibly be peace, no matter what choice the people make. I'm not sure he believes that even if Judah repents at this last moment, that the Lord can stop the imminent destruction. Poor Jeremiah. He says, my guts are writhing. My heart is pounding. I cannot be silent for I have heard the trumpet, the call to war. More than any other prophet, Jeremiah gives us a window into his heart and it is a heart in anguish. And for this reason, Jeremiah is often called the weeping prophet. At the very end of chapter four, there's another reference to Jerusalem as the daughter of Zion using exactly the same metaphor that Isaiah used. You'll remember it. I hear the cry of a woman in labor. Daughter Zion gasps for breath and says, I faint before murderers. The Hebrew in that last phrase is a little cryptic, but the idea seems to be that she's like a woman in heavy labor who is being threatened by killers. She's unable to even run for her life. From Isaiah, we might surmise that she's in labor to bring forth the Messiah. We talked about that. But no matter how you interpret this passage, whether you think it fits with the Isaiah one or not, it's still pretty dramatic imagery. Then in the first verse of chapter five, the Lord says, go search through Jerusalem. If you can find one single person, just one, who acts justly and seeks truth, I will forgive the entire city. So stop a minute there. One single person, one person who faces towards God. For that one person's sake, the Lord will not just spare the city. The Lord will forgive the city. So if you think that you don't matter, think again. 
Your personal stand, your just and kind and compassionate actions, your own seeking of truth rather than lies matters a lot. We'll stop there today. And in our breakout sessions, we'll go back and take a look at Jeremiah chapter six. We skipped it in class, but it's got some important points. And especially this week, if the questions don't speak to where your heart is today, what you're thinking about, um, feel free to talk about whatever topic seems important to you, you know, related to what we're studying in class. Um, It's probably a good a good point to have a um, kind of a free discussion. I did put um, study questions out there, but don't feel like you have to um, do them or answer them at all. So did you all talk about the questions in the guide or did you find something else that you wanted to talk about? We talked about the, the questions on the back of the page. That was the one that, that was puzzling me the most. And Eric and Ellen had some great insights. Okay, so this, we're, we're talking about the, the question about one single person? Mm-hmm. Yeah, and was, okay. and was God lying, and how do we handle contradictions? Okay, so, so for the, the benefit of um, folks listening, um, this was saying, now in, when we closed, the last part of class was where Jeremiah, the Lord told Jeremiah, if you can find even one single person who deals honestly and seeks truth, the Lord will forgive the entire city. And I raised the question, like, doesn't Jeremiah count? I mean, like later we find that Daniel and his three friends, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, which are their Babylonian names, are righteous. They live there, presumably. The the prophet Zephaniah was of royal descent. He's pretty certainly lived in Jerusalem. All these guys, there's got to be righteous people living in through the fall of Jerusalem. So the question was, is the Lord lying? And how do we handle these contradictions? (laughs) Well, let me tell you that when you were talking earlier, um, back in the earlier part of the class, I had to chuckle about what you said about uh, these prophets were not taking dictation from God. Because when I looked over that question, here's the note that I wrote before you said that. The note I wrote was, the passages were written by people. The authors were not taking dictation from God. (laughs) (laughs) Exactly. Exactly. Right. You know, it's, it's like they get talked to by God the same way you get talked to by God, you know? Mm -hmm. And so what did you all, what what did you have to say, Erica and Ellen? Um, I started off, I mean, our group kind of went in pretzel time as well, but I, I, what I realized uh, for me personally, it was, could this be another limited perspective that we have similar to when we were talking initially a couple of weeks ago about fire, we see, we were taught that fire was death, the end hell. And we're learning that fire now is um, refining. And so when we looked at the fall, even the word fall of Jerusalem, is this another limited view of maybe it is just the, the process of rebuilding that, yes, it might have been the, the, the fall of a city, but could it be the rebuilding process that got still working even in present time to even looking at the end of times in the new heaven of he is rebuilding to create the ideal 
image that he had all along, which is to have us dwell with him in the future, whenever that will happen. <laughs> I don't know. That's how we kind of initially started. So it it's a limited view. It is pretzel time that the fall it may not even be the fall right now. It's the continued re rebuilding of the new heaven. Um, and then I think you, and I think Julie had other perspective. So that was mine. Yeah. Well, and, and Ellen, you also had an insight into um, um, the, the difference between what God doesn't say, I will spare the city. If you can find these people, God said, I will pardon or forgive. We didn't know if that was true though, because in your, in your slide, um, Pastor Gail, you had mentioned he saves and forgives. So we didn't know if when you said save, did that mean physically spare lives or did save mean spiritually, you know, again, forgiving or kind of restoring our soul? Right. I think that's what we're, you know, open for discussion as to how do we take these, you know, we don't want to latch on to individual words and try to make them fit something or make them say something we want it to say. We want to approach from the big picture down, you know, rather than from well, the big picture up. And Julie and I kind of took a different little take. We, we started discussing that Jerusalem is a huge city. So if you live on the north side of town and these people live on the you know west side of town, how are you to meet them? So... It could be that Jeremiah didn't even know about them. So he couldn't find the people he knew about didn't fit into that uh, mold, he was thinking. So he's like, I can't find anybody. But these people, I mean, there's what, five names here? So and probably more, but probably more. The, the, probably mm -hmm. the, the people that God was thinking about. And thinking, you know, this is perfectly clear. You can understand me, human. Um, they did. He just didn't even know even where to look. Hmm. Okay. Oh, and another thing is, we got cut off before I was able to tell Renee this and Scott was I was thinking, and wouldn't these people be in prison? You know, for their situation. How many people do we know in prison ourselves? I know, I know nobody, but, you know, that's not, there's a huge prison population. We don't know that many people, and there's people in there that are going through a transfiguration in their spiritual life. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Julie, too, share what you had said with us. We were, we've been talking about a different perspective on the, the one. Oh, okay. So, so I was thinking that maybe it would be, it would comforting to Jeremiah to know that he only had to find one person and that he probably may have actually known somebody. Um, but it just sounds to me that maybe I didn't read the passage right. And he, is it true that he did not know anybody? I, you know, I don't know if he, he knew the people that I named in the um, list. I would assume that he knew Zephaniah since they were both prophets, okay. you know. So, so could it have been that, you know, this was not such a big task uh, that God, you know, was kind of saying, 
you know, all you have to do is just find one person and uh, you don't have to do uh, this whole big project. You, you just have to find one and it's probably your next door neighbor um, because all you have to do is just go around and, and start getting to know people. If that that's kind of, if that is that kind of what I meant before. Yeah, that's 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 what it sounded like to me. And it's uh, we were wondering. I mean, this could be taking taking it too far. What we were saying, you know, could God have almost been being sarcastic of like, even if there's just one, I'm going to forgive all. So like, chill out, dude. You know, like, <laughs> you because know, you said it was Jeremiah one. Yeah, I think he was. Right. And I think yeah. God knew that, you know, so was it like, you know, even if there's just one, I got you. And it's you. Yeah. Yeah. And it's you. Yeah. Maybe God was like, hey, look in the mirror. <laughs> yeah. And then and then we sort of circle back to what you had been saying in the lesson, Gail, about um, us existing potentially from the moment of creation on. And and this was in a way sort of God bringing into focus the fact that we live in this physical time, in this physical body, in this physical place, but God has this broader perspective. And so when God says, you know, I will, I will forgive them. I will save them. I will pardon them. God is talking about something completely different than we would think of in terms of sparing this city from that army that is coming now. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. And I wonder if um, it, you know, it really brought strongly to mind for me, the Sodom and Gomorrah story That's where, yeah. right. Yeah. Where, where Abraham kept bargaining the Lord down, you know, 20, 50 people, mm-hmm. 25 people, 10, five, if I can find five, because, you know, you could tell that he was thinking, I, I don't even, I don't know where these people are. I don't know that I can find them. I, I don't, I for sure can't get 25 <laughs> <laughs> well, yeah. our group didn't really didn't get to this question, but <laughs> but I had made some notes about it too, and you know my my feeling about it is which, which may get me kicked out of this group is that <laughs> um, that this was kind of like her hyperbole to make a yes, point exactly, <laughs> and and you know it's sort of like literary license or something, <laughs> you know, that, you know that, I mean I'm. Not sure exactly what the point was that that um, that he he thought uh, God was going to forgive Jerusalem, um, but but that's the way I read it. That's mm-hmm. the way I read it too. Um, I take it in the sense that um, like what we did in class with the parts about Zephaniah where God says, "I'm going to wipe everything out." But then he's not really meaning he's going to wipe everything out. You know, he's wiping, he's refining the evil away using these other nations as tools to do that. You know, he's stepping out of the way, letting that happen. Then the Lord's going to step back in kind of thing. And I, that's how I also see this. If you can only find one person statement that the Lord's not lying. What the Lord is doing is revealing his heart and it is the heart of the father of the prodigal son. And that all the Lord wants is for Israel, Judah, his chosen people to turn back to him. And he will take piecemeal. 
even he will he will do a loaves and fishes on it you know he will if 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 three people you know if five people if 25 people if one person if the number wasn't the point that the what the lord was saying was it would not take much at all for me to come all the way back to where you are and isn't that different with uh, Sodom and Gomorrah is that he, he didn't feel that same way about Sodom and Gomorrah. He pretty much was writing them off. Uh, he, 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 it was, it was, um, can't remember his name now. Abraham. The, the Je- Abraham. Thank you. It was him who was uh, bargaining. Yes. It wasn't God who's saying, look, everything's going to be okay. I mean, it was like, <laughs> good luck finding anybody, but yeah. All right. Yeah, yeah. But, but God did send the angels to rescue Lot and his family mm-hmm. out of the city. That's right. And um, remember, Sodom and Gomorrah are pagan. And um, they, this is not chosen people we're talking about here. This is not Israel and Judah we're talking about here. It's Sodom and Gomorrah way before all of um, Israel and Judah. And so God, this is an example of uh, a single man, Abraham, following the Lord and God saying, I'm about to like wipe out this little spot of evil over here because I hear the cries of the people who are suffering. And Abraham knows his nephew lives there, you know, and, and Abraham says, whoa, 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 wait, there, there might be righteous people in that city and has a dialogue with the Lord about it. Um, so I think the Lord's heart for his people, Israel and Judah, and the fact that God will come all the way back just for a few is the same heart the Lord displays towards all the other nations as well. He wants to forgive. He wants to forgive. He will do anything to forgive. So, so go back. What do y'all, you said your group didn't make it to the second page. What did y'all talk about? Um, just real quickly, going to the second a question about um, look at the crossroads, ask for the ancient paths, ask where the good way is. We talked about that, and we we talked about what are they what what is meant by the ancient paths. Ah. And I think I think we agreed that if you go back and look at verse sixteen that that is quoted there, it immediately follows the passages, the verses where he talks about how everybody's greedy everybody's awful, uh, loathsome conduct. They're not even ashamed of their loathe. And so the, to, to us, the ancient paths probably just referred to an earlier time when people were more um, devoted to Yahweh. Because mm-hmm. they had obviously fallen away from that. Mm-hmm. And um, Jeremiah was saying, we need to go back to an earlier time. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. that's that's what we talked about yeah that's what it sounds like right um mm-hmm. although uh, of course from our studies i'd have a hard time picking out which exact ancient time to pick to go back to <laughs> you know? but but clearly what and the 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 question did any of the other groups did any of y'all get to this like how do we 
how do we do that? That seems like a good thing to do, to ask where the good way is and walk in it. And you will find rest for your souls. It, how do we, how do we uh, ourselves do that? How do we know if we are walking in the good way? Well, I don't want to dominate, but I had a very clear feeling about that. The way to do it is to follow Christ. And what does well, that mean to you? Say again? What does that mean to you? What would that look like? Well, that means love God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength, and, and love your neighbor as yourself. Mm -hmm. And uh, mm -hmm. try, to, try to live outside of your ego uh, as much as possible. Yeah, there's that humility word again. Yeah. Mm -hmm. yeah. Which seems to be a really big theme to the Lord. I don't know if you've noticed that. <laughs> <laughs> Renee, well, I heard you. Yeah, uh, Julie and I talked about um, that sometimes how you do things like this. Um, we, we took it as a follow-up to question one. It was. Where the leaders aren't taking care of people like they're supposed to. And our basic was you need to stand up and, you know, be a voice to the people that don't have a voice. And in times when you can't do that because of your job or, you know, you, you just can't put yourself out there for whatever reason, then you can support the people that are putting themselves out there. And so you do what you can do where you're at. Mm -hmm. It doesn't matter how small it is mm -hmm. or how big it is. You just do what you can do to help. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. I think, it, go ahead. Oh, go ahead. No. Um, kind of what Renee is saying, I, I can't help but think that is what is going on in present times, right? You have very different opinions about everything, politics, racism, abortion, homosexuality, you name it, everything it's a black or white perspective. Um, it's a binary perspective. And it seems like both sides, because we're limited, we usually only have two sides going on, are trying to stand up and have a voice. So if we're even talking about the abortion, as we're now seeing, it's more than a physical body. But both sides are trying to speak for what they, with their limited view and perspective, because in their mind, they're doing what they're called to do, which is to speak up. <laughs> so mm -hmm. it, it's sad because you don't know how then both can coexist because without getting ugly, like we're seeing today. And I, I'm, I'm just sad because I too want to have a voice, but that's what the other side is doing. And it doesn't seem like there is humility in speaking one's voice or doing what we're, we feel God is calling us to do. I, I, I'm just having a hard time seeing it in mm -hmm. our per current times. There's a lot of speaking and not much listening and understanding for opposite views mm -hmm. all at the same time. And, and it, I think, the solution that a lot of people have is just to speak louder <laughs> instead of trying to find out more about other views. 
And sometimes I think it helps to remember that the body, what Paul said about the body of Christ, that we're not all the head or the heart or the hands or the feet or the whatever, you know, we all have different roles within and gifting within the body of Christ. Mm -hmm. We are placed for different purposes and are gifted with different skills and different resources. And um, it has been helpful for me to begin to be more attentive to what exactly my role is in the body of Christ. I asked that, see how I rephrase that? It's not what is my role in the world. It's what is my role in the body of Christ. And by that, I mean what Woody was talking about, about If we follow Christ, we are Christ's hand and feet in the world. (laughs) You know, I'm not talking about navel gazing. I'm talking about doing things. So um, there I I look at people who are so gifted um, with uh, how they speak and how they are able to, you know, marshal all the details of a particular um, stand or reasoning or, or um, uh, and the people who um, are able to enter into a strenuous dialogue um, without getting run over, you know what I mean? But that's not the only place to stand. Um, I, I think that uh, a very large amount of what we individually are called to do is to sew the threads of hearts together. And so when we can enable people to listen to each other's stories, when we can model for people how to listen to each other's stories, when we can make opportunities for that to happen, that's how hearts change is with stories is when it's a face, all the philosophers and theologians, you know, they will tell you it's when the, when the other has a face, you know, mm-hmm. um, that's when the other has meaning. Um, so it's, um, there are people who are working jobs and generating money, like Renee said, to support folks who are out there in a more frontline capacity. That's just my two cents. It's interesting too, even in that last question, like how do we know we are walking in the good way? You know, it's, it's wild how we, we talked about this a little bit in our our group, how we still have such an idol of certainty, you know, even as we were hearing about that, what's happening to these cities, to me, I like, I I just kind of like tip back over into my idol of certainty of like, well, yeah, what happens to them? Like, what do I have to do? You know, it's again, back to the like, how can I make sure that I'm doing A plus B so that it can equal C and you know, what's going to happen to everybody else. And I, I want everything in it kind of back to Erica's binary. Like I want a nice clean little box and this is what to do. And this is what I read. And this is how much I read. And this is what you should do so that I can know I'm walking in the good way. So I wonder too, if there's a piece of back to kind of the call back to humility, if even that question is, you know, one of those things where, where you know, can we really, you know, when it 
all gets boiled down. What do we absolutely know? It sounds like you know the the continued theme of turning towards the Lord, you know, being humble before the Lord. Um, you know, I love the idea of putting a face to the others, but it, I, I guess I'm just, um, this is kind of a confessional right now that I'm still really struggling at my, my, in my spirit is wrestling with wanting certainty. I want to know that I'm walking in the good way, yeah. right? I want to know, give me the formula, tell me what to do, coach me so that I can go do it, you know, which is probably part of my athletic background. And I'm, I'm, uh, I'm just confessing that to the group that I'm still wrestling with that title of certainty. Or could it be back to our question three of maybe there is a little bit of humor and sarcasm of the Lord of like, how many more times do I need to tell you guys? There isn't anything else. I am pursuing you. I am coming to forgive you. I am the one. Like, there's no do for you guys. There, it's just rest in it. And yet we're still trying to do right. So I think even question back to the rest for your soul, like what is the good way? How do we know we're walking? We, we, we don't, but can we rest in the uncertainty of God is a big God that loves us so much that there is, that he is pretzel time working and out to make it so obvious for all of us in our limited perspective and our own journeys that we are in that, he he is pursuing us mm-hmm. and he loves us so much he will make it so obvious to all of us in our own unique ways that kind of back to tulian it's god plus nothing equals everything if, if i could keep that perspective all the time and keep that in my head all the time i i think that would yes i i could that would that would make it much easier, but I, I lose it. I forget. Mm-hmm. That would bring rest to our souls. I was thinking when you said that, that if you find yourself in strife and struggling over something, you are not resting in it. It's possibly not the right way to go. If you feel comfortable in what you're doing and pursuing, then that's a little bit more clear that you're on the right track because you're not wrestling with yourself over it. And I think that, that um, the, these prophets also give us a picture of when we're not on the right path. So they, you know, and they're in that picture seems to be very consistent. It's like when you're oppressing the poor, when you're stepping on people, when you're not being just, <laughs> you know, when you're, when you're be hoarding stuff, power or things or whatever to yourself, when you think you're more important than somebody else. So there's this really consistent picture of when you're not on the right path. <laughs> and then there's this great big ocean that Erica was describing of swimming in the love of God, which is the right path. You know? Yeah. Well, and, and then also we have that, that guideline that is sort of the antithesis of what you were saying is the wrong path, which is to seek justice, love mercy, and walk humbly with your God. And that is more of a sense of, you know, the opposite of hoarding and, and abusing and, you know, um, ostracizing 
and damaging others. It's, it's floating in that mercy and love and saying, yeah, come on in, the water's fine. Yeah, exactly. And Donna added a couple of comments in the chat. I don't know if you saw, but her point is that it matters what we do. It matters where we stand. These little things that seem to be small to us, that ha they have ripple effects. And we ourselves are a ripple effect of the generations that have gone before us. Mm -hmm. um, all right, any last comments? All right, that was a beautiful discussion, folks. I'm, we may need to clip out, you know, Erica's speech there at the end and paste it separately for us so we can go back and remember it. But, but um, it, it's wonderful. Pray for those who weren't able to join us today. They're having hard times in their lives. So um, pray for those and, and I will see you next week. Obviously, we will not have class on Thanksgiving. So we'll have next week and then we'll have a week off. So see you in a week. Bye. Bye-bye.